thank you all for coming. Uh, we are so excited from the Woods Hole Theater Company to be invited to Katuit because our venue is not yet open, so we can't really do anything in Woods Hole. And um, as you probably know about actors and performers, we, um, we like to test our craft. So we appreciate you coming out to hear our stories and uh, help us uh, formulate our stories even better by your responses. We've been doing storytelling, much like the moth, 10-minute stories, for probably the last five years. I think when I was looking today, I think this will be our 12th storytelling event. We've had over 45 people like yourselves take the risk and get up on the soapbox and tell a 10-minute story. Sometimes the stories go a little longer. We do have a hook, so, um, <laughs> but usually they're about 10 minutes. So um, if you're interested, please, in maybe crafting a story, if you have a story that you've been burning to tell or a favorite story you tell at, at parties um, that you might want to craft and bring up to the mic, um, please get in touch with me, Annie Hart Cool. I'm the president of the Woods Hole Theater Company. My partner in crime is Gary Vacan. He organized it. He's over there. You'll be hearing from him a little later. And my dear friend Melinda is going to kick off the night. Tonight we have Melinda Gallant, Paul Dunn, Karen Berg McPherson, Dave Kuhirian, Gary Vacan, Troy Clarkson, and I'll finish up the evening with a story. Well, I'm not going to tell you. I'll tell you later. Anyway, without further ado, Melinda Gallant. Okay, so I just got a cordovan, no, cortisone shot in my knee today, this afternoon. So if I fall off the box, you'll know why, and call Dr. Diamond, because it's his goddamn fault. <laughs> Anyway, my name is Melinda Gallant, and I'm very fortunate to work with both Woods Hole and Katuit Center for the Arts, and I love being a board member here, and I love performing here, and I love directing here. This is a fabulous place, so I'm going to give you a two-second pitch. If you're not a member, become one. That's it. <laughs> He's laughing in the back. The other thing I want to say is I normally tell stories about my childhood growing up in Ohio. I was Farmer Smith's youngest daughter of five. So there are lots of jokes. Just think of the jokes that could be told about Farmer Smith's daughter. And they were told about me. And I told sto the story about how my, until I was about 17, I thought my first name was Goddamn. Because my father used to say, Goddamn Melinda. But now I'm telling a different story, and it's a story about something I do here on Cape Cod. I am a justice of the peace. Now don't anybody get near me with a match, because this is absolutely made in China, and it will go up, it will go up in a heartbeat. And I take this, because this takes up time for me, so I don't have to go all 10 minutes. Yes, you can laugh, you can laugh, that's supposed to be funny. Yes, this is what a justice of the peace wears on Cape Cod. We wear a robe, a black robe, a judge's robe. I was going into the Daniel Webster for a wedding about 
I don't know, two years ago, and some group of guys were coming out, I think they were golfers or something for the weekend, and they looked at me and they said, don't you think you're a little old to be graduating from high school? I won't tell you what I said back to them. Anyway, this story is called Until Death Do Us Part. It was May a few years ago, and I received a phone call on a Wednesday and was from a very, very nice gentleman named William Bob. Now that was his name, William Bob. And so we began talking and he said he wanted to get married this Saturday. Yikes, not a lot of planning. And he said, no, they've been planning for about 12, 13 years actually. So I said, okay, I said, well, you know, I can send you a, a, you know, a form. And he said, I, I, I really don't do well with the internet. Can't you just come and marry us? And I said, okay, yes. And now I'm thinking, will I get paid? Will I be murdered? I didn't know what was going to happen. He did live in Wareham, so eh. Anyway, so I got the address, 33 Cranberry Lane in Wareham. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? Sounds pretty good, right? So I go over the bridge on that Saturday and they wanted to be married at 2 p.m. I'm sorry, they wanted to be married 2.30. Hands going up the clock for good luck. So I went over the Bourne Bridge and I get off at exit one because I wasn't sure where I was going. And I drive, I drive, I'm following my GPS. And I go between all these cranberry bogs and I don't see the cranberry lane anywhere. So I go up and I turn around and I come back. And as I'm coming back, I see a small sign that says cranberry lane. And I look and it's to my left. So I put my blinker on and I turn in and I am in Wareham's finest mobile home park. Now, I have nothing against mobile homes, truthfully. They're housing, and God only knows we need it on Cape Cod. I just wasn't prepared for this mobile home. So I drive up, and there it is, 33. Nice mobile home, well-kept outside. There wasn't any cars jacked up, you know, on, sitting on blocks. Uh, there were flowers in the front. Nice bay window. However... It was 12 feet wide and probably 100 feet long. It was 1,200 square feet, but it was narrow, and I'd never seen anything like that. So outside, there was waiting a gentleman, two gentlemen, actually. And the one came over to me immediately and said, Hi, he says, my name's Billy Bob. Now I'm computing in my head, oh, William Robert. And I said, oh, William Robert. And he said, no, no, no. Everybody who knows me calls me Billy Bob. I said, well, it's nice to meet you, Billy Bob. And he introduced me to his best man, whose name was something like Steve or something. And he said, now, what do you need from me? And I said, well, I need the license. And I need my payment. Otherwise, I don't perform. You know, I'm kind of like, I don't know, is it Stormy Daniels? Anyway, so... So I, he takes me in a second door. So we walk down on a very narrow deck all the way down, not to the first door, but just to the second door. And we go in, and it's a kitchen. 
a very narrow kitchen, but it has granite countertops, it has uh, stainless steel appliances, and I'm thinking, this is so weird, but it's only 12 feet wide. So there's a small table there, and we sit at the table, and he hands me all the stuff that I need. And I said, all right, let's get this, let's get this done. Let's, let's get you married. And he said, oh, this is wonderful. I've been waiting for 12 years for this. God love you. So as I, we walk up the trailer now, inside, I see sitting on a couch three very large children. Very large children. And he introduces me to them as his children. And there was Bobby Joe, and there was Jimmy Bob, and there was Bonnie Sue. They never said a word the entire time. I said, hi, nice to meet you. They went like this. I said, wow, I said, you must be excited about, about, about the marriage. And they went, never said a word. I actually don't think they had tongues, but we won't go there. Anyway, so I looked at him and I said, okay, where would you like to be married? And he pointed, and there was a six-foot fireplace, brick, gas fireplace, beautiful, with a six-foot mantle with a big, giant piece of wood. And on that mantle, every inch... So probably, I don't know, 12 times six, I don't know, probably 72 of them were Barbie dolls. Standing up with each had an individual wedding dress on, all crocheted by hand. And he said, what do you think? So my first thought was, do I tell him what I think? And I thought, no. I said, wow, I said, somebody went to a lot of work. He said, well, that was my Auntie Jessie. I said, oh, and he goes, this is Auntie Jessie's home. I said, oh, I said, well, where's Auntie Jessie? And he said, oh, she'll be out in just a minute. And she, she'll be out, with, out soon with Bonnie Lynn. That's his fiance he was marrying, the bride-to-be. And by the way, they were both the mother and the father of the three very large children. They were very large as well. Anyway, what is that saying? The apples don't fall far from the tree? I think that might be appropriate here. Anyway, so, so we're standing there, and the next thing I hear is this, from a front room where there was a bay window. Remember I said I drove up and there was a bay window on the double wide? And I heard, and around the corner came Auntie Jessie. Yes, she came around the corner, and she was in a scooter. Yes, it's a 12-foot wide trailer, 100 feet long, but she had a scooter. Now, Auntie Jessie was a big girl, too. So she comes up. And I'm standing with my back to the fireplace, thank you, Lord, because I've been looking at those Barbie dolls. I don't know what might have happened. So my back was to the Barbie dolls, 
And he is on my left side with his best man. And here comes Auntie Jessie. She had to park. And she gets parked and all settled because it turned out she was going to be the maid of honor. Because why? She had done all those dresses on all those Barbie dolls. So, as I'm standing there, out comes Bonnie Lynn. Now, she's a big girl. And, and have you ever heard of the term meringue for a wedding dress? If you ever saw four weddings and a funeral, that was a big topic. Will they look like they're wearing a meringue? Do I look like I'm wearing a meringue? She was wearing a meringue, actually. So she comes out, lovely person, and she goes, oh, it's so nice to meet you. It's so nice to meet you. And we begin the ceremony. And I say, we are gathered here, blah, 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 blah. And we get to the part where I say, Billy Bob, do you promise to love Bonnie Lynn with all your heart, mind, and strength? Do you do vow to be Bonnie Lynn's best friend and do everything in your power to make her as happy as you are today? And he says, yes. And he's looking at me. And he keeps staring at me. And so I, I look at Bonnie Lynn, and I said, Bonnie Lynn, I, I, you know, so here he is, right? And he's, he's giving me the stink eye like this. I said, Bonnie Lynn, do you vow to be Billy Bob's best friend and promise to love him, make him as happy as you are today? She says, yes. And all of a sudden, I hear, psst. Psst. Where's the death till death do us part? I said, well, I don't say that. He says, well, you're not married until you say, till death do us part. Okay. Um, okay, so you're going to exchange rings. So we'll do the ring exchange, and then I'll say it after that. Well, you have to say it for each of us, because she has to swear, till death do us part, too. And I said, okay. So we go through the ring exchange and put the ring on her finger, and say, I promise to love you forever and ever, and blah, 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 blah. And then I look at him, and I say, and you will now say, till death do his part. And he looked at her and grabbed her hand with tears in his eyes and said, till death do us part. So I go to Bonnie Lynn, because the man always goes first. I go to Bonnie Lynn and I said, blah, 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 put the ring on your finger, blah, 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 put it on his finger and blah, 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 blah. And then I said, please repeat after me, till death do us part. And she grabbed his hand and look in this woman's eyes, who's kind of a, obviously a round-faced, cheerful little lady. She went, till death do us part. Okay. And so I said, by the, uh, by the power invested in me, by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I now pronounce you husband and wife and partners in life. You may kiss your bride. And they kiss. I mean, it's the kind of sloppy kiss that everybody in a church would just squir squirm over. It's the sloppy, 
arms around. They're big people. They're bumping up against each other. And I'm just standing there just trying to stay out of the way. So when it was all over with, I looked at them and I said, now, where are you going? What are you doing? And they said, well, we're going on our honeymoon. Well, where are you going? Oh, we're going to Foxwoods. And I said, oh, that's great. I said, we're going for the weekend? Oh, no, 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 no. We're just going down now. We're going to have dinner at, at um, we're going to have dinner at a place. Oh, God, I can't think of the name of the place. On uh, 28, we're going to have a dinner in Wareham, and then we're going to go down to Foxwoods just for the night. Oh, I said, do you have a room? No, we're gambling all night. I said, okay. So that is probably one of the strangest weddings I've ever done. But if somebody looks at you and wants to marry you and says, we got to have till death do us part in the wedding, I'd get worried if I were you. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, next up is the fabulous, funny, and unusual Paul Dunn. <laughs> Thank you, Melinda. That was very funny. Good evening, everyone. It's nice to be here tonight. Hey, at first, I just want to take stock of my audience. A couple of questions. Who here likes to eat fish? Ooh, good. This is, we're off to a good start. Who here has been fishing at least once in their lifetime? Even better. Who here? still goes fishing, even now. All right, little drop off, but not so bad. All right, so maybe at this point, you might be thinking that this is a fish story, a fishing adventure. No, no, this is nowhere near as important as fishing. This is a life and death story. This is grabbing life out of the jaws of death. It's a maritime disaster story. It takes place many years ago when that lovely lady right there with the, her iPhone up there, that's my daughter Haley, when she was five and I got a boat and she got the naming rights for the boat. And what she came up with was Atlantica. Yes, Atlantica. Atlantica? What kind of name is that for a boat? I just, you know, you picture Atlantica, picture this 300-foot mega yacht, seven stories high, you know, that maybe some rich billionaire would own. We just had a 20-foot center console old with an even older engine. And we loved to go fishing. I had a friend of mine, George. He was my fishing partner for years and decades. And we had heard that there were plenty of fluke that were out on the Elizabeth Islands, way out, actually past Noman's Island, south of the vineyard. And I just have to back up because I forgot to add in there that couple of years or many years after the naming of our boat, I asked Haley, I said, Haley, where did you ever at five years old come up with the name Atlantica? And Haley goes, oh, come on, dad, you know that. 
it's, it's the name of the Little Mermaid's un underwater kingdom. She said, we watched The Little Mermaid how many hundreds of times? And I went, oh yeah, that's right. I remember Saturdays seeing it 10 times in a row with that glazed look in my eye. How could I not forget the under, underwater kingdom? But underwater kingdom, sunken kingdom, is this, is this like the context that you want to name a boat in? It, we shall see what will come to pass. Anyway, George and I, we, it's a beautiful Saturday in the summer. It's one of those days where you have maybe four or five of those. Beautiful, beautiful sunshine, no wind, not so hot, low humidity. The water is flat calm. We leave Falmouth Inner Harbor, and instead of the boat hitting the waves like this, the boat is just cutting right through the water, just making this hissing sound like Sssss. We were in heaven. We get out to our we get out to the spot, and it's like, oh man, we can't wait to catch a fluke. For anybody that doesn't know, a fluke is a flounder on steroids. They get much bigger, they have a much bigger mouth, and they have plenty of really sharp pointed teeth, which they love to exercise on your hands when they get too close. But to me, they are the tastiest fish in the whole ocean. So we put our lines down and right away, wham, we start catching, catching, catching. And what I had done is on the back of my boat, right in the stern, I had taken my perfectly good deck and I cut a nice big hole in it and put a hatch cover in and put a boxed out the bottom and that was my live well. So what I would do is there was at the stern, very stern, there's what's called a bilge plug. So anything below the deck is called the bilge. And I would pull the bilge plug out and let water come into the boat. I know, I mean. But it would fill up this area and it would be a live well. So when the fish that we caught, we would put them in there and they would stay alive and happy and frolicking, and frolicking all day long. So we're catching our fluke, we're putting them in there. And I just happened to look off to the Southwest and I see this black band in the sky. And I went, oh yeah, the forecast. It's going to be beautifully beautiful day with the possibility of thunder squalls in the afternoon. And I say, hey, George, you can be George. Hey, George, a thunderstorm is coming. So I say, all right, we can catch a couple more. It's, it's moving fast, but we still have time. So we're catching more, more, more fluke. Then we notice it. It's getting blacker and blacker. And then all of the bigger boats that have been way out fishing, they're all starting to come past us heading back to port. You know, the 55, the 60 footers, they're all beating it back to Falmouth. And I'm like, I wonder if that means we should start heading back. No, but we got time for one more, just one more. Put my line down, sure enough. <clears throat> I haul up the biggest fluke I have ever caught. It's 34 inches long. It weighs about 14 pounds. 
and this thing was nasty. It was not going down without a fight. As I'm trying to take the hook out of its mouth, it latches onto my hand, and I had 14 nice little holes in my hand, all dripping blood. Yuck. But I put him, put him in, the, in the live well, and look up, and the storm is right there. Now we can see the lightning coming down. Ding, da-ding, da-ding, da-ding. So, all right, quick, get up the anchor. Start the engine, turn the boat around, gun it. We go about 200 yards, and I hear this, pow! I look back, and there's all smoke coming out of my engine. I blew a head in the engine, and it is kaput. It's like, oh, shit. All right, put the anchor out. Get my radio. Sito? Sito? The guy answers. He says, well, it's going to take me an hour and a half to get to you. I'm up in the upper part of Buzzards Bay hauling somebody else. I'm like, but we got about five minutes before the storm hits us. So we get ready as much as we can. We lay the poles down in the boat, and then the storm comes. The wind, which was like nothing, suddenly starts roaring in. The seas start building one foot, two feet, three feet, four feet. I learned later that the gusts were up to 55 miles an hour. With the anchor out, it kept the bow of the boat down. So we were getting waves over the bow of the boat into the back. And so we were, had to start bailing. We put all the, all the gear down. We were crouched as low as we can because now the lightning is all around us. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. And we're like, oh my God, please, please, please. And right about that time, George says, Paul, there's water coming out of the hatch. And I look back, and sure enough, there's water coming out of the hatch. I open it up, and the water comes pouring out. And I notice that the stern of the boat is starting to sink. And we're about to join the Little Mermaid, and we don't want to. It was like, oh my God, what happened? The bilge plug must have come out. So I dive into the hatch, I reach back as far as I can, and yes, there's no plug. I'm pushing the fish out of the way looking for it because it has to be there. And that fish, that nasty big behemoth, I ran my hand over the top of it, came up to its mouth, and there's a big hunk of metal in its mouth. I grab it and I yank it and I go, give me that. And it had grabbed the bilge plug with its mouth and when it was flipping, it had pulled it out. This is Boy Scouts honor. This is exactly what happened. I grabbed the bilge plug, dived down, put it back in, and we start bailing even more. But we, the boat is going like this. The rain and the wind, the, the rain is coming horizontally. We have our life jackets on, and we are really not sure at this point if we're going to make it or not. But we bail and bail and bail and squeam and, and, and shudder and everything else. And then all of a sudden, things start to calm down. The wind isn't so strong. The rain lessens up. And we look, and the storm is passing over us, and now it's hitting the vineyard. So after a couple more minutes, we can actually see the sun. And we're like, oh my God, we made it. Wow. And then behind us, we hear, ah, ah, and we turn around, and there's the Seto guy. Oh, now you can be Seto. There you go. <laughs> and he comes up next to us and says, hey. How you guys doing? Huh? I made it. He said, boy, he said, boy, that was a really bad storm, huh? But you guys look like you made out just fine. 
Look at him. Where the heck were you like 20 minutes ago, buddy? Ah. So we get the line hooked up. He's towing us back to Falmouth. George and I are sitting back. We had our feet up on the dash. We're just talking about how grateful we are to be alive and what a story this is. Right, George? The story that we're going to have to tell people for the rest of our lives. And then I started thinking, what's the moral of this story? You know, stories like this, there has to be a moral, right? There's always a moral. I was like, uh, oh, the heck with it. It doesn't have to be moral. We're bringing home dinner. Thank you. Mary, uh, Mc, Mrs. McPherson. Miss McPherson. Mrs. Mrs. <laughs> Is it Mary Beth? Karen. Karen. All right. There's. I practiced that so much. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good evening. In the summer. Of 1969, I was living in Arlington, Virginia, with, in a house with about 10 other people, including my boyfriend. And we were around and we heard about this, this, this concert that was going to be given up in New York somewhere. Now, at the time, I was a folk singer. I was into Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Ian and Sylvia. I didn't know much about current uh, bands or anything like that, but it sounded like kind of a really groovy thing to do. Now, I'm going to tell you, a lot of you may have been there, a lot of you heard about it, everyone has a different memory, my memories are not your memories, and so you got to go with mine, even if, the, even if the written word disagrees. Anyway, my boyfriend and I thought this would be really groovy, so we went out and got tickets, $7 a piece, $7 a day. And our friends, however, said, you're buying tickets for that? It's outside, for God's sake. Music belongs to the people. We're not going to buy any damn tickets. And turns out it, they, they were right. Um, so I arranged for someone to call into my office on Friday morning saying that I was sick. And on Thursday night, Three, uh, three cars, a VW bus, my VW Beetle, and one other car uh, among our friends headed for New York. And in the middle of the night, we hit a traffic jam that you would not believe. We were on a two-lane road, and we were four cars abreast, inching forward. We said, oh, shit, they are busting every car at the beginning. So we took our contraband and hid it in the springs under the seats and kept inching forward and jumping out of the car to use the woods if we had to relieve ourselves. And when the sun came up, we kind of got pushed into this meadow. Now, it had been raining a lot, so when we got pushed into the meadow, we kind of sank into the grass our cars, and we said, well, we can't spend three days here. We better go scope out a better place to put our cars. So somebody did recon and came back and said, oh, I found a great place. And as we left the meadow, you could see the deep trenches that our cars left in someone's property. 
anyway, we found this great place in the woods and we put our, sh our cars up like a U, put, made ourselves a little campfire in case we, for the evening. And we set off to this great concert. And we passed this house that was obviously not occupied because they had an outside spigot. And there were probably 40 people lined up getting water and in the three days we were there, I never went by that the spigot was turned off or that there wasn't a line of people. So the, the neighbors probably weren't real happy to have this many of us descending on their quiet summer, and we had no idea either. Anyway, that first night, we're down house left of the stage, and Joe Crocker comes out, and he's saying stuff, and he says, give me an F! Give me a U. Give me a C. Give me a K. What have you got? What have you got? Say it again. Oh, my God. That felt so good to do. Oh, we were such, such energy among us. You know, we were looking around, more people than you ever saw in your life in one place outside. And then um, uh, Richie Haven comes in. Now, this is where some people disagree. But he said, wow, it's dark out there now. How many of you are there? I can't see you. Why doesn't everybody strike a match? And so everybody took out their matches, and we struck it. And it was gorgeous, all this little twinkling. And the matches would burn down and go, shit, you know? And we'd strike another match and put it up. And it would burn down, shit, you know? About 15 years later, I went to a Fleetwood Mac concert in Los Angeles. And everyone had their damn bicks out. What a bunch of wusses. <laughs> anyway, so that was the first night. We went back to our place late, late, late at night. And, and cooked over our campfire. And as we were finishing, at the end of our U, in the ghost light of our campfire, were people who were hungry. And we gave them the food that we had left over. And that was the first part of sharing. The second part of sharing was sharing logs. I'll share my log if you share your toilet paper. Yeah. I saw last year on a retrospective that there were hundreds of porta potties there. I never saw one. Never, never. And I'm probably, if I'd have seen it, I'd have still used the log. Um, but anyway, so, so the second day we go out and we, we're much more centered on the bowl. And there are hundreds of thousands of people focusing on the stage down in front. And, and we had some fairly nice contraband. And the people in back of us had some lemonade and Kool-Aid. And the people over here had some chips. And all of a sudden, these little communities started forming on the hill. And it was like civilization on fast forward, you know? And, and there were paths that went around, and none of the paths ever went through a community. They always respected the communities that were forming. And, and so it was really awesome. Now, 
Many years later, when I rediscovered my Christian roots, I was thinking about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and how it was always such a silly story to me. You know, this guy going around with a basket with fishes, and every time someone took a fish, another fish popped out of it, um, you know? And I thought, ah, but here were the people who some of them had lemonade, some of them had a sandwich, some of them had this, and all on this hill looking at Jesus, they all shared. And so Woodstock became my Jesus Feeds the 5,000 allegory. Uh, so then the next, I had to go and find water. I started going from door to door to find some water. And on the way, there were the policemen brought in from New York. And they didn't have policemen uniforms. They had Woodstock t-shirts. And they were waving people on with this peace sign and everything. And um, I went from door to door asking for water. Water at that time was free. Nobody heard of bottled water in the United States, you know. You just ask for water. Sure, here's, here's some water. People were so angry that we were there. They kept telling me to go away, go away, go away. And finally somebody gave us some water, which I was very grateful for. Um, Saturday night... Saturday night, I looked out, and it was Janis Joplin. I never thought much of Janis Joplin. She frankly didn't have that spectacular a voice, and she was kind of screwed up. But she gave such an amazing performance. She's the only performer that I went out immediately and brought, bought an album of when I got home. She was amazing. So then Sunday morning, I'm feeling pretty grubby. And there's a pond down past the medical tent where people are going to bathe. And so I went down there, and the, the press weren't allowed down to the pond. We weren't going to show the mothers of America what their children were doing. And so I went down, and I found a bush close to the pond, and I crouched down quickly and disrobed and left my clothes there. And I ran into the pond, and luckily the water was turgid enough. You couldn't see below it. And some guy comes up and says, would you like some soap? And so that was the kind of, you know, closeness that people had. Now, Sunday afternoon, we had to go home. I had to go to work on Monday. So suddenly, now all of the people in this community, not the, not the, not the invaders, but the people who were living there, had seen their place on TV all weekend all over the country, it was on TV. And suddenly they realized that there was such a focus on them and that there were people who were hungry. As we left town to drive back south, people had set up card tables all down the, all down the street and were giving away sandwiches. And it was the most wonderful thing. Now, we got home Monday, I got dressed, went to work, went in and say, hey, Bob, to my boss. And he didn't say hi or anything. He just looked at me and said, you were there, weren't you? <laughs> Thank you. And now, Dave Kokorian. Did I do that right? <laughs> Thank you. All right, so... 
after high school, I decided, uh, like everyone my age, to go to college. I went to art school, and I didn't know at the time that art schools have a kind of a philosophy. Some are very classical, some are very modern. Unfortunately, I was in a modern art school. I should have paid attention and read the brochure. So in one of my classes, it was a 3D design class, sculpture class. And the assignment that was given to us was that we had to create something small out of plaster that would be interesting to look at and to hold, right? To pick up and look at. So, all right. so I started thinking about it, and I came up with an idea of a planet with a metal cube in it that's starting to expand. And the planet is starting to break apart. And then I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there were little stairs all over it, like a little guy running around leaping over crevasses, trying to stay on the planet without falling off? And then I thought, what would be better now, but I should paint it. I did not know that I had broken many rules at the art school. Everyone else, apparently, was doing sort of egg-shaped orb sorts of things. And they were all going on about the vibes and all that kind of stuff. And they all hated my planet. My professor hated my planet. But it was hard to do the work on the planet because they wouldn't give it back to me. They were busy looking at it and touching it, which seemed to be the point of the, of the lesson. But what do I know? Anyways, I did not do well on that assignment. I think I got a D or something like that. So several years later, in my fourth college, um, <laughs> it's a long educational journey. Let's not judge. I finally got my degrees after nine colleges and universities. <laughs> Stick with it. It's all I can say. Um, so I'm at my, my fourth university. And uh, I need a science credit, so I'm taking astronomy, which I know nothing about. And I don't know that much about it now. But the final project um, was something I didn't do. And I realized that on the morning that the final project was due. So on my way out the door, I thought, you know, I should take my planet. So I grabbed my planet and I take it down to the lecture hall. And there's several hundred people in the lecture hall. And I sit in the back with all the kids who don't know what's going on. And I hand my planet to the professor. And he looks at it, and he gets very philosophical. And he's like, oh, yes. And he starts saying some really interesting things that I didn't, couldn't comprehend. And then he's passed it to all of the students. And each of them looked at it. And we're fascinated, and they say really interesting things about, you know, the square as opposed to the circle, and all this. It's just brilliant stuff. I was really amazed. Very educated, like, brilliant kids. Finally, it comes to me at the end of the line in the back row, and they all turn around, and they say, please, tell us what it means. And I was like, I mean... I thought it'd be kind of cool if there was a planet and a little guy was on it and he was running around. <laughs> but I got an A in astronomy. So, many years later, and this is the funny part, I'm a teacher and I'm, I'm in an art class 
and I'm working with some students. And the assignment is to do sort of geometric shapes that you're going to cut little parts out and add little parts, and then it's going to be painted. And it's a two-point two perspective kind of an exercise. And if you follow directions correctly, you'll have a nice little piece that you can be proud of, and you can show your parents and maybe put it on your refrigerator. So going around helping all the students, and I come to this one girl, and she's very kind of shy and reticent and so forth. I'm like, oh, let me see your piece. She's like, oh my god, no, I could never show you my piece. It's so terrible. And I was like, well, I mean, how bad can it be? It's like, oh god, it's so terrible. I was like, I mean, likely it is, but <laughs> let's take a look and make sure. So I looked at the piece, and you know, objectively, it was not good. But as I spent another second looking at it, something dawned on me, and I said, you know what, Anna Pearl, this is an amazing piece of art. She's like, why, I did all of this, I was like, no, 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 no. Yes, you failed miserably at the assignment. That's, we, we agree. But you didn't do the assignment. You did a self-portrait, and it is beautiful. And it says everything about you. It shows your insecurities. It shows your vulnerabilities. It shows your sensitivities. And she starts crying. And she's like, I can't believe it. It's like you looked inside me. And I was like, no, you did it. You made a self-portrait out of something. And then it suddenly dawned on me. Everything we do is a self-portrait in some way, shape, or form, right? Everything we create, Everything we put on, everything we do, the way we stand, the way we move, it's in some way, it's a self-portrait. And then I started thinking about my cube. And I thought, if that's true about her picture, I wonder if there was something going on with my cube. And then I thought about it. And my cube is a little planet, but inside the planet, there was a steel cube that was expanding and growing. And I kind of felt like that. There's always something inside me that I felt really solid and strong about. But it's covered with insecurities that were crumbling away. And then my little ego was running around the top of the planet trying not to fall off, trying to hold it all together. It kind of reminded me of Eric Clapton's quote that he felt like he was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's it. Without the talent. But that's it. And so here's my planet. And what I have to say to you all is go out and make art. Get to know yourself. Okay? Get to know your hopes. Get to know where you're at. Get to know what your fears are. Do your art. Do something creative. Pay attention to yourself. Let yourself speak to yourself. It's really worth the journey. Go make art. Next up is my good friend, Gary. I'm going to try to do this. Let's see if this works. I have to use my hands. OK. It was. A perfect day on Vineyard Sound. I decided to go fishing. Now, th this is not an unusual decision for me. 
But what I didn't know is the set of events, the set of things I was about to embark on was going to result in the biggest and most consequential lie of my entire life. So it was a perfect day, bluebird perfect. I decided to go fishing. I got my boat. I'll try back. I got my boat at, in Green Pond, and I headed out towards Martha's Vineyard. I headed out towards a place called uh, Middle Ground. Middle Ground is an underwater sandbar just off of the vineyard. So I got there, and the tide was. I'm going to go back further. Let's see if we can. Sorry about this. How's that working now? Good. Okay. So I, the tide was slack. I knew that meant that. I knew that meant the fish would scatter. So I, it was perfect though. I stopped. I looked around, and I could see this underwater sandbar, and I could see the water gradually turn to blue on either side, almost like the Caribbean. And I'm thinking, oh, it's slack tide. There's going to be no fish. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? But I'm there. It's just me, the only boat, and this little piece of heaven between here and Martha's Vineyard. And then I saw them, these shadows in the, on the surface. I could see shadows on the sandbar. And they were moving towards me. I knew what they were. They were striped bass. So I tiptoed back in the boat. I got my fly rod in my hand. I started putting the line in the air. And at just the right moment, I let go of the line. And I watched it roll out on that perfectly smooth water till it got to the, it got to the leader. And I watched the leader roll out perfectly. And then I saw this little fly that I had tied drop in the water like a pebble in the mill pond about 10 feet in front of the fish. Perfect. Okay, my heartbeat's going up. I'm thinking, oh, these fish are going to hit. Oh, I'm pulling on the line. It's perfect anticipation, that perfect anticipation that every fisherman feels when something good's going to happen. Okay, how'd I get like this? I mean, I'm 60-something years old, and I'm obsessed with fish. I mean, my God, it's just fishing. What am I talking about? It's never just fishing. It's never just fishing. I first learned to fish from my dad and my uncle Bernie. They taught me to fish about as soon as I could walk. And they had this philosophy about fishing. See, there was a hierarchy. At the bottom of the hierarchy is bait fishing. And bait fishing was to be scorned. Nobody bait fishes. Bait fishing is like, you know, going to a restaurant for the fish. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's not hard enough. You had to use artificial lures, right? So artificial lures, that was okay. But the pinnacle was fly fishing. Fly fishing was the right way, was the only way to fish. So they, they drilled this into me. So I remember one time we're fishing at the North River, and my uncle is one side of the river, my, my father's on the other side, and I'm down, down the river, and one of them looks at the other and says, hey, Bernie, something stinks here. And the other one says, yeah, I smell something. It was because some bait guys had shown up. I thought we were gonna get beat up. I mean, it was, it was crazy, right? Now, it, it, fishing was important, though. My father was, to me, and, and the two of them, you know, they're in this contest, right? They're brothers, right? Who, who caught the biggest fish and so forth. And it was very important to me. They would take me fishing, and they, my father was an oil dealer in town. My uncle was the police chief in town. And they'd invite civic leaders and business leaders to fish with us. I was like 10 years old. And I was encouraged to have a conversation with these people, with adults. And it had a big influence on me. And they were good men. I mean, my dad would deliver oil to people that could never afford to pay for it because they were cold. And, and, and my uncle, as the police chief, he would invite 
the children from uh, troubled homes to come fishing with us to try to help out. They were good guys, no charity galas or anything. They just did this out of the goodness of their heart and they taught me what it meant to be a good guy. But when it came to fishing, they were absolute and unabashed liars. They could tell a lie that would curl your toes. And they very much enjoyed telling those lies to me as a young boy. And I bought those lies hook, line, and sinker. And, and, and they loved it. I remember the story that my uncle told. He, he, he told these crazy stories. We're fishing up in Canada for Atlantic salmon in the Miramichi River. And he says, well, you know, there's this pool. One night we're sitting around the guide's house. There's this pool called the Quagus on the river. And the Quagus, according to him, was this place where the rapids ran through fast and there were tons of Atlantic salmon in there and there were boulders the size of buses and you had to climb up on these 20-foot round boulders to fish for the fish. And he said one day they showed up there and they found a guide. He was dead and he was lying face down on the river with his fly rod in his hand like this. So I say to Bernie, I say, you know, what happened? I mean, what happened to the guide? He says, well, obviously the guy caught a fish and the fish swam round and around the rock so many times that the guy got dizzy, he fell off the rock, he hit his head and he drowned. So I said, well, Bernie, you know, I'm a young guy, I'm not afraid of that, let's go to this fish there. Oh, no, 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 way too dangerous, way too dangerous for a young guy like you. I was probably 25 when I figured out that the Quagus was a fabrication. So when I wasn't fishing with these guys, I attended St. Patrick's parochial school. At St. Patrick's, I learned the value of discipline and the power of guilt. I, I remember getting an assignment once where I had to underline some words, and I underlined them free, freehand. What a terrible kid I was. I, I, I didn't use a ruler, and I had to write 100 times that I have to use a ruler to underline my words. I, I remember you know, getting marched over to the church, and the church was a big, intimidating structure for a young boy, and sitting in these enormous wooden pews, and being lectured on how we were all going to go to hell and burn and we were terrible kids. So you know, may notice that I retained a few twitches from this experience, right? So, you know, most people, if you ask them about me, and they said, well, you know, I'm more of a logic guy than a spiritual guy, more of a, uh, a Spock than a McCoy. Uh, they, they, but I hold some spiritual things to be true. I believe, and I believe without question, because of experience, that when we die, it isn't over. And I think it's not over because people that have died that have been close to me have somehow delivered a message to me after they've been gone. And I believe this with my whole heart. So anyway, you're saying by now, I thought you were going to tell me a fish story. What's this got to do with fishing? Well, let me assure you that every story is a fish story. And this has got everything to do with fishing. So I'm back in Vineyard Sound. Those fish are getting closer. I'm pulling on the line. And one time I took on the line, I feel it go tight, and the rod doubles over, and that fish takes off for the Elizabeth Islands. Ecstasy. Wonderful. So tug of war for about 10 minutes. I look down. I get it close to the boat. It's a beautiful striped bass. I reach down with my hand, and I grab it between uh, lower lip between my thumb and my forefinger, a technique every bass fisherman knows. I put the fish on the boat. It's about 35 inches, a beautiful striped bass. Wonderful. I go back home. I get on the dock. My wife comes down with the camera, and she takes a picture of me holding the fish. I got my fishing rod in this hand, and I got the fish in my hand, just like this. And she takes that picture, and we have a nice dinner that night. And it was an important fish, because I caught it the right way. I caught it the way my dad and my uncle taught me, with the fly rod, not the easy way with bait. I didn't cheat. I caught it the right way. Okay. 
So then time goes forward. Time goes forward. So this happened way back in 2006. Time goes forward. And my dad would come down and fish with me now and then. But as he got into his 80s, fishing from a small boat was difficult because it's hard to keep your balance on a small boat in your 80s. So my wife and I hatched this plan. We had my dad go down to the dock with, on the boat and stand in exactly the same position I stood to take a picture of that fish. So he has the fly rod in his hand and he's holding his hand out like this, like he's holding a fish, but uh, there's no fish there. Now being a nerd, Photoshop is no mystery to me. So we cut the fish out of my photo and we pasted it into his hands. Now, once you get that far, it's very hard to resist the next thing, which is you can grab both corners of the fish. <laughs> so we did, and we printed this photo. So hold on. So we printed this photo. And um, my dad took it home, and he put it, hung it up in his porch. And he hung it up behind the chair that he always sat in in the porch, because when people would come to visit him, he would have to explain the photo, and he enjoyed that very much. So my uncle came to visit him, and my uncle, being the better fisherman, uh, was quite perturbed by this photo because my dad had obviously caught a larger striped bass than he had ever caught, and he caught it on a fly rod. He quizzed my dad incessantly, and my dad formed this elaborate story on how he had caught the fish and never winced. Bernie called me up on the phone, and he said to me, Gary, did your dad really catch that fish? And I said, of course he did, Bernie. And he says, was it for real? He always loved to say, is it for real? And I said, yes, Bernie, absolutely, he caught the fish. So this went on, this lie considered for, for years. Clock goes forward again, 2013. And this is the part of the story that's hard to tell. Both men died within two months of each other. They were both, both funerals in the same church. Now, it was the St. Patrick's Church, the church I'd grown up in. And the church had been renovated, but it was largely the same. And those big wooden pews were there, the same ones. I sat in one of those big wooden pews, and I was transported back 40 years. It was like yesterday. I was that little kid again. My feet couldn't even touch the ground, you know, f from the pew, because it, it was so, so it was not, not deja vu. I was there. But, you know, there was one thing that was different. These two guys that I worshiped were gone. At the second funeral, my uncle's funeral, my cousin Tom got up to give the eulogy and he climbed up to this huge pulpit and he has a great speaking voice and he gave the eulogy and he told fish story after fish story and it was wonderful. I was enjoying it very much and I was sure my uncle and my dad were there looking down and seeing this and I'm enjoying it. But there I am sitting in the pew and I'm sitting with the only two people that knew the story, of the, that were still alive, that knew the story of the doctored fish photo, my wife and my sister. I'm sitting in the place that defined a guilt for me. I'm sitting in the epicenter of every feeling of guilt I've ever had in my life. In the middle of the eulogy, Tom looks at me. Now, he, my uncle was the police chief, so the church is full. Tom looks at me, he's looking at me. I'm saying, well, why is he looking at me? I'm sitting up the front with the family, he's looking at me. And he says, that Bernie, your uncle, never got over that picture of your dad with the fish. <laughs> what have I done? <laughs> My, I, I, I've lied in front of the church, the community, God, everything. And so 
my whole fishing life flashed before my eyes. I remembered all the great things they taught me, all the great places that we fished together. I mean, remember catching that bass and, you know, taking the picture and faking the picture. And then I remembered all the fish stories that they told me. They told me incessant fish stories, the stories of the Quagus, the fish stories, all these fish stories. They told me these fish stories, the fish stories. Wait a minute. These two guys had died and they, usually when people die, they deliver some sort of message after they're gone. I hadn't really received a message yet. Or had I? You bastards! You bastards! This is another fish story. And you've told it from beyond the grave. This is a fish story that transcends death. <sighs> okay, Dad, Bernie. Love you guys. I guess there's one last lesson for me. Life, and maybe even death, is a fish story. But it's never really just about fishing. Our next speaker, my great friend, Troy Claxon. Thanks, Gary. Before I get going, um, I'd like to join me in a little directed community embarrassment. It's Gary's birthday today, so would you join me in singing happy birthday? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Gary. Happy birthday to you. So before I start my story, I'm guilted now into telling the truth about fishing from Gary's story. The picture of um, my wife holding the huge tail of a 350-pound tuna that we posted on Facebook a few weeks ago was a lie. Donna was nowhere near the boat. Gary actually caught the fish, and we went over, and she just held the tail and posted the picture. So now... I and Donna both feel much better for having relieved ourselves of that untruthful burden. Uh, I want to tell a story about some amazing children from Seabrook, New Hampshire. And it wouldn't seem as though that that story has anything to do with being here in this beautiful Cape Cod evening, but I was searching for inspiration for tonight's story that earlier today. Uh, and I was, of course, searching on the place where we all go for inspiration, Facebook. Um, and I was scrolling down, and I actually saw an ad that they're looking for part-time clerks at John's Liquor Store in Falmouth. And that was the inspiration for my story. The reason for that is, as a kid, um, you know, most 16-year-olds go to work at uh, McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts. But when I was 16, I went to work at... John's Liquor Store. Uh, I was the bottle redemption specialist. Uh, I even had a nameplate up on the wall. It's probably still there. And, uh, and so I, I did bottle redemption for two hours a day, every day after school. And uh, on the weekends, I would work 8 in the morning till 11 at night at John's Liquor Store. And I made some great friendships there, people that are friendships to this day. This is, uh, Jesus, more than 40 years later. The owner, Mark Ferreira, who still owns it and still lives upstairs, lived there with his mother until she passed away at the age of 92, just a year or two ago. 
we're still great friends. And one of the things I also learned how to do uh, there at John's Liquor Store was, uh, was drink. I often wondered what would have happened if I got a job like at a bank or something like that. Uh, I might have become a bank president, but I, uh, I worked at John's Liquor Store and I became an alcoholic. Uh, that's, that's true, you'll hear more about that in a minute. So I worked there all through college uh, and even after college and I got involved in politics at a very young age. There are many familiar faces out here, many faces from my past. I have to throw in a quick plug for Kathy Smith. Uh, I took my first acting class in, at the what's now the community hall from Kathy Smith when I was five years old. Uh, I'm now 16 and so that was... So I work at John's and I get involved in politics and I consider that I have diplomatic immunity. And, uh, and so one of the great things about working at John's liquor store back in those days is you drank free after work. So the liquor store would close, the police station was across the street, this is a true story, the cops would come after their 11 o'clock shift got over and we'd all stand around and drink together and then drive home. So one night, uh, I lived in Falmouth Heights and after a particularly active night of drinking with some of my friends, I, uh, I lived about a mile from John's liquor store um, on Jericho Path and uh, I could have just driven straight home. I was drinking Godfathers that night. Anyone know what a Godfather is? You ever had one? It's scotch and amaretto, right? And uh, so I had a half dozen or so of those. And I was driving home and I would figured I'd drive through Falmouth Heights by the casino to see what was going on that night. And, uh, and so I, lots of activity and there was a police cruiser. And back in those days, you knew who was in what cruiser by the number on the back. And I recognized the number on the back. So I pulled in right next to the cruiser to get out and say hi get out of the car and I fell flat on my face right on the ground. Police officer picked me up, put me in the back of the cruiser, took me home. He said, the beating you're gonna get from your brother tomorrow was far worse than if I arrested you. And he was absolutely correct. Uh, my brother was also a member of the Belmont Police Department. So I'll get to the Seabrook kids in, in just a minute, I promise you, but it, it, it takes this lead in to understand why these amazing middle schoolers from Seabrook, New Hampshire, uh, brought such joy in this time of difficulty and strife for all of us. So that story pretty much defines how things went for me for the next 25 years. Um, many blessings, many blessings in my life, including uh, two beautiful children who are now wonderful adult women. Um, uh, my dearest friend from high school who became my wife is now my ex-wife but is a dear friend and is a good friend to my current wife who's also an amazing person and is here tonight but you know the to get to the point where uh i'm i'm now happy to share with you that i've uh, that i've been sober for many years uh and i didn't just wake up one morning and say geez i drink too much i probably should stop it 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 took some challenges and some trials and tribulations. It got to the point where when I would leave the house, my wife would frisk me to make sure I didn't have any money on me to go out and, and buy booze. So I had an ingenious idea one night. I filled a shoe just like this actually with nickels and dimes because when I went out, I was gonna you know, go to the liquor store and buy some booze with my nickels and dimes. The problem was as I walked down the hall, one of my feet jingled uh, and one didn't and so she obviously uh, heard the music as I walked down the hall, took my shoe off, emptied out all the nickels and dimes. So the next time I left, I had to uh, really think of an ingenious place where I could hide money that she never would think to look. 
And someday I will find that liquor store clerk and apologize to them because you can imagine his poor horror when I walked into the liquor store and reached in back and gave him a $20 bill. True story. Um, so we get to the point where uh, it, it, it's time to, to get some help, and I'm, I'm happy to report that I did. And But things got pretty bad, uh, and I wound up actually deciding that my best option was to go live in the woods. And so I, I uh, packed myself uh, a change of clothes, a book, because I'm an intellectual, um, a blanket, and six bottles of booze, and I went into the woods. The genius that I was in those days, the patch of woods that I chose was directly across the street from the Falmouth Police Station. So it wasn't long before they found me. And uh, I got some help. And like I said, I've, I'm blessed to have been, uh, been sober for many years now. Shortly after I got sober, one of my dearest friends um, lost his wife very suddenly. Uh, it was weeks after I, I, uh, I got sober. And I felt as though everything does happen for a reason. We've heard that theme tonight a couple of times. And so I thought, you know, one of the reasons why I was able to be there for him uh, was because I was sober. And so to cheer him up, I would scour the Internet every day and look for inspirational quotes to cheer him up. And I would copy a quote from some famous thinker and email it to him and figure this is going to cheer him up. This friend is a bit of a wise ass. And uh, after doing this for a week or so, he called me up and he said, you know, I don't know why you keep sending me those. Why don't you just write your own and cheer me up that way? So I did. And after writing them for a few years, my wife said, you know, why don't you just publish those into a book? So I did. I'm not here to sell books. This is about the kids from Seabrook. Uh, but we were able to publish a book, interestingly enough, called Out of the Woods, that's a collection of those quotes that I wrote from my friend. So last year, um, I was talking to a friend. Uh, actually, this friend is the way that I got to know Gary. And for anyone that knows Bill Zammer, uh, knows that he is one of the kindest, most generous, most philanthropic people on this sandbar. Uh, if you know Bill, you also know that he doesn't suggest things or doesn't ask things. He tells you what to do, and when he does, I usually do it. So Bill said, we're going to go to New Hampshire, and you're going to talk about your book. So we grabbed 100 books and went up to Seabrook Middle School and talked to the kids in the middle school. Um, Bill's daughter, Joanne, is a teacher at that school, and so we went up, and actually, Bill and I sat with every class in the Seabrook Middle School and talked about my book. And I would tell them the story I just told you, and then Bill would pipe in with uh, comments here and there, uh, and, uh, and it was really a great time. The kids then sent me notes uh, shortly thereafter. And this was May of last year. And I got the envelope and I read one or two of the notes and they were very nice. And you know, we get busy and, and we don't take the time that we should to just breathe and listen and read and hear others and what they have to say. And boy, if this, these last six months have taught us anything, it's that we need to do that, to take time 
to read and to listen to each other and to hear each other and to really understand what each other are saying. And so as I was sitting there today trying to figure out what to talk about tonight, the John's Liquor Store thing comes up. I said, well, I'll tell a little bit of my story. Uh, but then I started reading these notes and I said to myself, these kids have a, a window on the world. They have a perspective that just helps us really put everything uh, in its right place. These kids helped me see my self-portrait. They really did. So what I thought I would do is just share a few of the notes that these kids shared because in this time of incredible angst and uncertainty and anger and anxiety, these kids were able to bring out a sense of hope uh, and enjoy in life and a perspective that just is a really good reminder of, uh, of how we should face every day. They read my own quotes back to me and I, I dog-eared a couple just to share with you because these are the kinds of things the kids said back to me. So, you know, there are people in the world who are nasty, mean, and vile, but none of them has the power to keep you from a smile. Things don't get better. The way we look at things gets better. You cannot think others into thinking your way, but you can surely think yourself into having a good day. That is not Dr. Seuss, although it sounds like it. I did not plagiarize. Kindness to others is the foundation of contentment with ourselves. So I shared these quotes with these kids. And in just an incredible reminder of the incredible vision of 11 and 12 year olds, I'm gonna read just a couple of them to you. Mr. Clarkson, thank you so much for coming to my school and telling us your story. I admire the courage and bravery you had to speak about your story. My mother and I read a quote in your book to each other every morning. Being 14, AKA an emotional wrecking ball, <laughs> I've had some, some woods in my own life. There were times when I had toxic dung beetles in my life and I had a hard time getting away from them. I was almost like a disciple to the dung beetles because they made me think that they were doing the best for me when in reality they were just isolating me from my friends. Last month or so I finally woke up and I realized that I had to rid myself of this toxic dung beetle. Ever since I've rebelled against the dung beetle, I've walked out of the woods and I've grown to love myself. This book does mean a lot to me and I think that your quotes are as comedic as they are inspiring. This is a 13 year old kid. Thank you for all that you've done, and I'll cherish this book forever. Love, Caroline. Mr. Clarkson, thanks for taking the time out of your day to come to our school. My father was an alcoholic two or three months until he's sober a year. Anyway, your story is actually incredible. I'm very happy you made it. You didn't sink. You sailed, and I'm super happy that you have succeeded. You went from an alcoholic to a sober, smart author who writes inspiration. And they go on and on. Uh, a couple of them were actually pretty funny, and I'm going to share those with you before I close. This one was pretty direct and to the point. No author's name. You shared some pretty embarrassing stuff, <laughs> and we can learn from that. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Your book is amazing quotes, and I love reading it. My favorite quote is, small-minded people say small-minded things, 
pay the words no attention and give them their wings on page 65. This is my favorite quote because I relate to it a lot. I relate to this because my ex-friend has been saying small-minded things out of jealousy to me. Thanks for sharing your story and teaching us that there's always someone there for you when times get hard. 12, 13-year-old kids. One made a pop-up card with a tree in it. I read these for the first time this afternoon. Thank you for telling a part of your life. I relate to your story because I've had someone in my family die from drugs and alcohol. I loved him very much. His name was Jake. I learned to make better choices in the future other than Jake from your story. Jake was my stepdad. My favorite quote from your book is, true contentment comes from within, not who you're with or where you have been. One more time, thank you, from Hope. And if anyone needs any inspiration that we just have to be grateful for each day, here's one from Mackenzie. Thank you so much. Your book has helped me through my hardest of days. Your story really helped me too. It made me believe my dad can still change and that it's never too late. I know you're probably wondering what happened. He got into drugs and he's now living in a tent somewhere that I don't know. But you telling your story gave me hope. My favorite quote to look back and read is, your can'ts are your limitations, your cans are your inspirations. Thank you again. So I can look back on silly things that I did uh, and laugh at them today, but boy, these kids really found a way, not just for me, but for all of us, to find inspiration in every day. And to be able to laugh at ourselves and look at our own self-portraits and see the beauty in the insecurity. My favorite philosopher that I'll leave with is my friend Donald. Donald says, after doing the title, I realized my book was backwards. But whatever, I'm just going to roll with it. Because <laughs> I just don't have patience. But in your words, patience is the pathway to the pursuit of peace. So I need to work on that. My dad, Don, doesn't really agree with everyone unless they believe in his beliefs. He gets into verbal fights with his own father, Don, over politics. So I gave him this book to hopefully help him stay calm throughout the day. Thanks. Let's hope he sees the truth. So if you're ever having a bad day and you're struggling with your gratitude or wondering now to find some meeting in these crazy times, then I strongly suggest you take a ride up to Seabrook Middle School and visit the seventh and eighth graders because they have some of the most amazing inspiration and gratitude that I've ever come across. Thank you. And to round out the evening, uh, a dear friend, the Empress of Ebullience, the Godmother of Gratitude, Annie Hartcool. Wow, this is crazy. I'm trying to uh, do this like this so there's no feedback. How's it sound? Okay? Great. So you're having fun? Um, yay! Yes, this is, you know, David and um, I and Gary were kind of uh, testing this, and I think it's working so far, so it's nice to see you all here. So my story is about being judgmental, which is kind of a theme tonight, right? <laughs> but my story is about how um, we all have, um, we all have our own belief system, 
that creates a judgment. Uh, we have biases. We see things differently. And uh, sometimes judgment can change the trajectory of your life. So I'm going to fess up. I hated him. Ugh. I just had this strong dislike for this man. He would come to my place of work. I used to run the Armed Services YMCA out at Otis Air Force Base, um, and, which was this beautiful YMCA, parquet floor, converted 1940 uh, hangar. And all five services used that facility for their athletics. And I was the director. And this guy would show up. He was a competitive athlete. He would show up in these neon lycra onesies on his bike. And he would clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack across the parquet floor. And I'd be like, sir, could you bring a different set of shoes? It's not good for the floor. And he would dismiss me as he goes into the weight room. Well, nobody puts baby in the corner. I hated him. I hated every little lycra piece of his neon orange outfit. I would go into my office and say to my assistant, he's all yours. I cannot see that man again. His arrogance just made me crazy. And as of this year, we will have been married 25 years. So judgment, right? It can be a really powerful thing. I love and hate very close together. So I married this guy, <clears throat> and it wasn't long before I realized that he was from a different country. I travel a lot, but he was from a different country. And that country had a sixth food group that I was unaware of. Now, I travel a lot, and I totally get, uh, like, there are countries where you can have wine for breakfast. I'm in. I'm good. I go with those social mores. Um, I went to Russia one year, and uh, they literally, when you checked into the hotels, they'd give you a fifth of vodka because the water is so bad, you have to dip your toothbrush to avoid being sick the entire trip in the vodka. So brushing your teeth with vodka, I can, I, I'll roll with that, right? So my husband's family was suckled, weaned, cultivated, grown on this sixth food group from the country of Minnesota. Jello. So I didn't quite understand Jello. I still, quite frankly, don't. Um, for me, being a Yankee, born and raised in Worcester County by a single mother of five, Jello meant I had a sore throat. It was right up there with Robitussin. Or, quite frankly, poverty. Because I always knew when my mother's paycheck was at the end of the line, because we'd have cream chip beef on toast and jello. 
So I didn't quite understand. When we go to a funeral in Minnesota, and there were tables and tables and tables of the jiggling matter in all kinds of different sizes and shapes, layered with cream cheese. And oh, by the way, what are they putting in Jello? Morning, noon, and night, they eat Jello in Minnesota. Oh, please, no breakfast Jello for me. Boiled eggs in Jello. Ugh. She's. Still, up until her death, tried to get me to eat the spaghetti-o jello. Anyway, tables and tables and tables of masterful art made of jello. I don't even know how they get them out of those forms. Mine would never work, but, and I tried. I tried to be a good daughter-in-law, but it would never work. And the layering, the hours these women, it felt like it was a competitive event, going to a funeral. And by the way, I ran into someone t tonight who's here in the back, who I said, I'm going to talk about Jell-O. And she said, oh, Minnesota funeral salad? I said, yes, you get me. Anyway, so I'm looking at this, these tables in this church basement of all these configurations of Jell-O. And what self-respecting shrimp ever wanted to be put in Jell-O? And my husband, newlywed, comes over and he says, honey, are you okay? What's going on? I said, I just, I, I just don't get it. I, I mean, Jell-O, you're either sick or you're poor. What? I've never seen so much Jell-O in captivity. And he says, well, Jell-O is love. No, sorry, cannot go down that road. But when you see all that jello, it's clear that there's something about his judgment of jello and mine being opposites. So the kind of fun facts about jello, because you know, I'm in a family of jello now. Um, one was if you remember that great old movie, The Ten Commandments, the black and white one, when they part the sea, the sea is mountains and mountains of jello. So as an actor, I start to think like, wow, what did that set smell like? And then, like, when it's over and they got to get rid of it, what do you do, grab a spoon? Crazy. Or how about the Wizard of Oz? You know the green ponies? All jello, lime jello. I mean, the poor things. Well, anyway. And did you know that in the Europe had this terrible, terrible outbreak of mad cow disease? Now, jello is the... Um, is a uh, collagen that comes from the, hopefully, the hooves of deceased cows. We're hoping they're deceased. And, and that's how Jell-O came to be. And so when mad cow disease came out, they banned Jell-O off every single shelf. I felt vindicated. But, of course, that's an old practice from the beginning of time. And the person who discovered Jell-O, by the way, the way Jell-O got its name is the wife of that person went into his lab and said to his, her husband, you need to come in for dinner. And he said, what do you think about this? And she's looking at this massive gel. And she says, gel. Oh, 
true story, look it up on the internet. Everything you see on the internet is true, apparently. But I Googled that, and that's how it came up to be out. So I still don't get Jell-O. I don't understand it. It's not part of my, it doesn't exist in my world. I understand that every, three out of five houses have Jell-O. Some of them have the uh, discontinued flavor. Like celery jello, never saw celery jello. Tomato jello was a big one. Um, but there are discontinued flavors that people actually seek out, and I know they're in pantries in Minnesota. So, fast forward years into our marriage, we fly out during a terrible storm to um, Minnesota, and I have the good fortune, I meet people everywhere I go. I met this wonderful woman in the Providence Airport. And it turned out that she was like the third prom date to the fourth football player who went to school with my husband. I mean, it was crazy how they actually knew each other um, all those years ago. And she was in Providence because she was at a Silpata jewelry um, conference. So I'm a bit of a jewelry hoarder. So I was kind of excited, you know, like I met this gal with a catalog. <laughs> and we go out to Minnesota and we get a message from our, our brother that he can't be there to pick us up because the storm is so bad. Well, our new friend said, hey, I'm going back to Marshall, Minnesota. You can ride with me. It's four hours, by the way. Very, she didn't want to drive alone in the storm. So we said, okay. And I figured I've, I'll be in the back seat with the catalog. They're up front, they're reminiscing about all their school chums, and um, I'm shopping, least I could do. I'm shopping, and I hear it. My husband totally throws me under the bus about Jell-O. He says, yeah, Annie, she just doesn't get Jell-O. And the woman looks in the rear view, what's not to get? I'm like, look. In my family, you were sick or you were poor. That's how I look at Jell-O. I, I don't see it as an art form. It's not a competition. I don't get what you put in it. I just, I, please, don't judge me. I, I just don't get it. Well, she spent the next couple hours schooling me on Jell-O and the art of Jell-O and why Jell-O is important and the health effects of Jell-O. Months, maybe a month later, the Silpata box arrives on Cape Cod and I'm so excited <laughs> and I open it with great enthusiasm and there's a note stop depriving your husband 10 boxes of jello it runs deep in the country of Minnesota jello runs deep so my story is be careful of judgment <laughs> Sometimes you just can't. Get, I still don't get jealous, but I'm kinder about it now. I don't bring it up very much. And my husband still believes jello is love. So you all can go home with jello. He sent me with jello for everyone. Um, so for me, jello means you're sick. And now that I'm over 60, usually means there's a colonoscopy in my future. And, and, or that we're poor. And to my husband, that wonderful, crazy man in Lycra all those years ago, it means love and community and uh, sharing and those darn wonderful dying race of church ladies. 
So um, I have Jello for everyone, if, and they're socially capable of going home with you. I'm going to just put it out on the field and help yourself. Please don't, please don't let me go home with any of it. Have a great night, and thank you for supporting us. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, Annie, my family, all live in Indiana, and it's they put Miracle Whip in their uh, Jello salad. I know it's um, I, yeah. Thank you so much for the Jello. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I hope you had a good time. Um, it is so great to see people together, and hopefully someday we'll be able to open indoors. So uh, thanks again. Good night.